This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, guys. Welcome to The Liz Wheeler Show. I'm Liz Wheeler. I have a great show for you today, but before we get started, if you could subscribe to the show, I would greatly appreciate it. If you have an iPhone, just go to Apple Podcasts. If you have an Android, go to Spotify, hit that subscribe button. On YouTube, you can subscribe, although we're still under strike over there. You might want to go to rumble.com slash Liz Wheeler if you want to hear the fully uncensored um, interviews and episodes and everything that we have for you. Just go to rumble.com slash Liz Wheeler. So for the show today, what I want to talk about is we're nearing the three-year mark of when COVID-19 started. And when I say started, I mean quote-unquote started. When it started to become a thing in the United States, when we started to hear these stories about what was happening in China, our public health establishment here started to make plans. The mainstream media started to condition the American population to fear the COVID-19 virus. We're almost three years out from when that first started. And I can't help but sit here and wonder if we had not had the lockdowns and the mask mandates and the vaccines and then the vaccine mandates imposed on us by the public health establishment and the politicians, if early treatment, you know, the, the, the names that shall not be said, hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, had those treatments not been squashed by Fauci and the NIH and all of the, the leftist governors who were imposing these lockdowns, we have to wonder, what would be different now? Would the outcome, the outcome would certainly be different, but how would it be different? There are some leading scientists, some leading doctors who speculate that eight out of 10 people who died from COVID-19 during that first six months of COVID in 2020 would not have died had they had access to early interventions and had we had a more targeted approach to stopping vulnerable populations from, from being exposed to this respiratory virus. But you have to wonder, I mean, how many people died as a result of the lockdowns with cancer screenings missed and surgeries canceled and emergencies like heart attacks and strokes, people didn't go to the ER, you had mental health crisis, you had the economic impacts, which also have a, a negative a negative correlation to people's physical health and the amount or the, the length of their lives I have to sit here and wonder what would have happened had we done this differently if we had had different people in charge. And that's what I wanna talk about today because we have evidence. We had people at the very beginning of COVID-19 who were dissenting from the public health establishment, the Fauci's, the Deborah Burks's, who were saying, stop doing what we're doing. This is not the way to handle it. And the way that you are doing this with lockdowns is inflicting tremendous harm. So I want to play a thought experiment about what it would look like today had we done it a different way. So let's get to it. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? 
Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, so this dissent that I'm talking about, if we had handled COVID-19 a different way, if we had not gone with the Fauci's and the Burks's of the world, if we had listened to alternative viewpoints and followed the actual scientific data, what would have happened? In order to answer that question, we have to take a step back because we weren't allowed to see this dissenting viewpoint debated in the court of public opinion. Even though these these lockdowns and these mask mandates, these vaccine mandates, the, the prohibition on these early treatments, they impacted us and our family members and our friends and our coworkers, we weren't allowed to hear the dissent because big tech censored it. In, the, in one of the recent Twitter files revelations, this is, what, uh, this is what Barry Weiss wrote. She said, a new Twitter files investigation reveals that teams of Twitter employees build blacklists, prevent disfavored tweets from trending, and actively limit the visibility of entire accounts or even trending topics, all in secret without informing users. Twitter once had a mission to, quote, give everyone the power to create and share ideas and information instantly without barriers. Along the way, barriers nevertheless were erected. Take, for example, she tweets, Stanford's Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, who argued that COVID lockdowns would harm children. Twitter secretly placed him on a trends blacklist, which prevented his tweets from trending. As if that's not bad enough, Dr. Bhattacharya found out that he was placed on this trends blacklist the day he joined Twitter because he posted a link to the Great Barrington Declaration, which advocated for targeted interventions and not wholesale lockdowns. And Dr. Bhattacharya is with me today. Dr. Bhattacharya, thank you for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Liz. Okay, so before we get into this bigger question that I've been discussing, where would we be right now had we followed the science that you saw from the beginning versus taking the recommendations of these public health officials, the mandates of the politicians that were based on ideology and not science. I want to ask you a question about the censorship that you faced when you did choose to speak out. When you found out that from the Twitter files revelations that you had been put on a Twitter blacklist, on a trends blacklist, the very day that you joined Twitter, your first tweet, how did you react to this news? I mean, in, in one sense, I kind of suspected it, Liz. It wasn't like a, a huge surprise. I mean, like the the uh, I, I could see that my I gained a fair following on Twitter uh, for for a scientist, but uh, but but I could see my tweets were going to the, my followers, and it was hard to reach people outside of my following. Um, that's essentially what the trans blacklist did. That it just confirmed that uh, they made sure that my tweets uh, didn't extend to people who didn't maybe didn't know about me or maybe just you know that you know sometimes you know on twitter they'll show uh you might like or or you know trending or something uh, my tweets never showed up on those things so that uh I essentially like they the, it, to me it looked like i was being successful since i had all these followers but i was speaking to a, a, essentially like a, a bubble of people that already agreed with me when my purpose was to teach to speak to everybody or as many people as i could reach um and twitter made sure that didn't happen um you know it's not just Twitter, though, I, it, I faced this kind of censorship through oh, some sort like this throughout the pandemic. In uh, March of 2021, I was in a uh, roundtable with Governor DeSantis, uh, you know, a public roundtable 
filmed by TV stations and whatnot. Uh, and and, and uh, uh, the, the governor asked me if masking children had any effect on transmission of the, of the, the virus. And I told him the, the fact, which is that there was no high quality evidence at all, you know, randomized studies that demonstrated any benefit from vas- masking children. Um, that, was just, that was just a true statement. YouTube banned the video of a sitting governor of a state getting advice from his scientific advisors to make sure that other people didn't hear this dangerous interchange. I mean, I, I was I was waiting for good government people to stand up and say, "Well, gosh, uh, shouldn't shouldn't uh, shouldn't people have access to what the governor's advi- the advice the governor is getting?" Um, but I never never heard that. Instead, it was you know mis- somehow misinformation, even though I was stating a scientific fact, uh, and uh, and YouTube just censored it. Uh, big tech, I think. Um, played a very bad role in the pandemic, suppressing the dissemination of basic scientific facts during the pandemic in the name of suppressing misinformation. But, but you know, I don't even—I don't think they did this alone, Liz. I mean, if you look at what actually happened, um, I've been involved with this lawsuit. Uh, the Biden administration—we—we—we—we uh, we, 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 me uh, the the the, um, the Missouri and Louisiana Attorney General's offices and the uh, New Civil Liberties Alliance have sued the Biden administration on First Amendment grounds, on censorship grounds, and I've been involved in that lawsuit. We've uncovered a dozen federal agencies that have set up, a, a, in effect, a vast censorship regime, a ministry of truth that that worked to suppress the dissemination of basic scientific information. They made, made sure that the, that the, the, the big, big tech giants uh, would, would enforce the censorship regime. It, I don't think these big tech companies just simply did this on their own alone. They did this at the behest of the government. And so this is a, it's a basic violation of civil liberties. It is. I mean, that's what we saw right from one of the most recent revelations in the Twitter files is that the FBI, and I know this was related to the Hunter Biden laptop story and not specifically related to COVID, but the apparatus exists for whatever topic they want to use to censor it or use it to censor. But the FBI actually paid Twitter over $3 million of taxpayer, $3 million uh, taxpayer dollars to censor us. So our money was being used by the FBI to pay big tech to censor us, which is, it, it's kind of bananas. So going back to your sort of lack of surprise, I always describe it like I'm shocked because it's immoral, but I'm not surprised because I expect this to happen, which is probably how you felt when you found out you were on this trends blacklist. Was was Were you notified before the Twitter files was published? Did Elon Musk or one of, one of the journalists that were revealing this, did they call you or did you find out when you saw this on Twitter? No, Barry Barry Weiss called me and, and, and informed me about this, and she wanted to clarify some 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 questions about my participation on Twitter uh, to help her reporting. So I knew that that it was coming when it when uh, when she reported it. Um, but uh, you know, I just still it's 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 one thing to know it in theory and feel it. It's another thing to see it in black and white. And I'm still coming to terms with it. I, I mean, I like the way I view it. It's not just that Twitter did this. It's it's that my own government worked to suppress my legal free speech rights. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, an, I'm a naturalized American citizen. Uh, I c- came to the US when I was four and I was naturalized when I was, I think, like 20. Um, I've loved this country. I, 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 and one of the reasons I've loved this country is because of its commitment to, 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 to free speech, even, even for unpopular opinions. I think it's very healthy for a country to have the ability for any citizen to, say, to speak their mind, as long as they're not you know, threatening people or, or whatnot. Um, uh, and it's one of the main reasons why America is so looked up to around the world. 
to find out that that in fact that's not the, the reality of how the American government has behaved um, d- during the pandemic is an absolutely I mean it's 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 a it's a huge disappointment to me. Um, I mean, and of course, personally, I, 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 I resent having the American government try to suppress my speech on the basis of they think that I'm saying incorrect things, even though I know for a fact I'm just describing my professional opinion about scientific matters and science policy matters. Um, but, but even more is I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm just like it, I'm sad. I mean, is the right word, I guess. I mean, I, I just if I think if we had had a fair debate, Liz. Uh, during the pandemic, about the science policy, about about the science, uh, not suppressed with the thumb on the scale by the government and big tech, we would have won that argument, and so many people would not have suffered as a result as a result of us winning the argument. We would have the schools would have stayed open, Liz. Children who uh, were denied in effect an education for two years and, uh, uh, would have would have actually had an education. The learning losses that we're seeing in in poor and minority populations, especially, but but basically everybody would have been avoided. Um, those are going to have lifelong consequences. Uh, we could have avoided the harm to a, tr- a tremendous number of small businesses uh, who lost their livelihoods. We could have avoided closing churches, schools. We could have avoided sent up. Uh, we could have protected vulnerable older people from, from COVID better. Because if focus protection had been the right, the strategy that had been adopted, which is what I was advocating basically through the whole pandemic, we would never have sent COVID-infected patients back to nursing homes. Because why? Because we did that because we want to protect hospital systems instead of people. Um, all of this harm and damage could have been avoided. So I mean, just I'm just tremendously sad looking back on the, the COVID and thinking what would have happened if we'd actually been permitted to have a free and fair debate. Um, that's what the that's what I was denied. That's what the American people were denied, and that and the consequences are devastating. We're going to be paying for it for a generation. It is. I mean, it's it's chilling almost to sit here three years later and ask what if. And it's our responsibility to ask what if, because a lot of people have died, a lot of people have been hurt, the lockdowns inflicted tremendous damage, not just economic damage, but damage on people's mental health, on their physical health, people's surgeries were canceled, cancer screenings were missed, people's diseases were advanced, heart attacks, people didn't go to the hospital for heart attacks and strokes. I mean, the the amount, I believe it was you and I who talked years ago about the number of years lost off of people's lives, even if they didn't die from COVID, as as a result of the lockdown. I mean, that's still a very valid discussion and debate that should be had now. And I want to ask you, at the very beginning of COVID-19, when we were first starting to hear about things happening in China in late February or late January, February, as we were preparing for that here, as the media was talking about it more, then when we had that first outbreak on the cruise ship, what was the first clue to you that the public health establishment not just got something wrong? We all saw, anybody who was willing to look past their ideology, saw pretty quickly that the public health establishment wasn't responding correctly. But when did you realize that it wasn't just a mistake that they were making, that maybe they would rectify when they realized it was a mistake? When did you realize that there was something much deeper at play? You know, it's funny, like very early in the pandemic, I actually thought the public health establishment was reasonable, right? If you read some of the um, the op-eds from some of the, the some of the people who pushed lockdowns uh, from like, say, February 2020, they were arguing for a focused protection strategy. They understood that it was older people that was at ri- that were at high risk. They weren't arguing for authoritarianism. Um, uh, there was some politicization almost immediately. Like, so I think, uh, I can, I forget exactly when, but President Trump imposed that travel ban from China, which I think, by the way, was too late. It was, it was already 
widespread. Uh, I thought it was a mistake at the time. Um, but there was some, some, a lot of the public health establishment viewed it as, uh, as a racist act as opposed to like a mistaken public health act. And that's, that seemed funny to me. But, you know, the public health establishment generally is on the left. So that, 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 that didn't strike me as like out of, uh, out of character. Um, the, it was really middle of March when we adopted the lockdowns that I realized that something had gone deeply off the rails. Um, and, and part of the, the thing is, is like the, the, the traditional strategy for dealing with, with respiratory virus pandemics does not involve lockdowns. It doesn't involve school closures, doesn't involve disruption of life. Um, the, the, the traditional public health strategy involves identifying high risk people, uh, moving heaven and earth to protect them if possible. Um, developing new therapeutics, developing vaccines as ra as rapidly as, as possible. All, all of that is standard, um, not lockdowns, not soci society-wide suppression of of, uh, of, of uh, the ability to, to of basic civil rights and, and our, our ability of uh, uh, basic uh, rights of association. Um, you know, it's, it's broader than that. I mean, essentially the lockdown from the middle of March on, we basically, public health basically put out the idea and they're still doing it to some extent, that our fellow human beings are biohazards, that we have to treat each other as if we are contaminants to, of each other, that, that we're all each dangerous to each other. Um, that's a really dangerous idea. That's when I was absolutely floored. And this was this is basically in the middle of March that, that Public Health started doing this on, on the turn of a dime. I wrote an op-ed in early 20, uh, March 20, in mid-March 2020, right after the lockdown started, saying, look, we don't know the mortality risk from this disease. Because um, back then, there wasn't that much testing. We were like looking at the people who had come in the hospital and asked how many of them died. And it turned out like 3% were dying, right? Which is actually a big number. Um, the problem was like, it's a highly infectious respiratory virus. It's, it was seemed likely to me that there were very, a lot of other people that had been infected that we didn't know about that had recovered. And so I wrote an op-ed in the uh, calling for public health authorities to conduct a study of antibodies in the population to see how, what fraction of the population actually already had been infected and recovered, to find the true death rate of the disease and to find out how widespread it was. Because if, if it's widespread already, then what are we doing a lockdown for? Is it to get rid of the disease? Is it just to suppress hospital, hospital overcrowding? Well, hospitals, you know, like... In New York, maybe they were push, pushed, but in most most of the rest of the country, they weren't. Why are we doing a nationwide lockdown if it's just about hospital overcrowding? Um, so, in the early days of the pandemic, uh, very early days, I'd say I, they, I was I was, you know, I was obviously concerned like everyone else in, in public health about this, um, but I didn't I didn't think the public health response was particularly out of line. In mid March, when we imposed the lockdowns, it was clear to me that I, that something had gone deeply wrong. So what is the thing that went deeply wrong? I mean, you mentioned two things. You mentioned that the public health establishment leans left, which I think is pretty obvious at this point, even if people weren't thinking about that fact before the pandemic. We know that now. And then you said that lockdowns are not part of the traditional model of addressing a respiratory virus outbreak or pandemic. So what was the thing that went wrong? Was it fear? Was it politics? Was it money? Was it a person? What was it? Well, I, I, I think, um, so there, there's some FOIA emails, you know, Freedom of Information Act emails that, that, have, that have come out from the NIH uh, involving, involving those early days of the pandemic. Uh, what happened was that the World Health Organization sent a, an envoy to, to China, I think to Beijing, actually, uh, in January. 
and late early February 2020. And I remember uh, during in January, I think it was late February, mid February when they actually went. Um, the the uh, the in January, China had locked down, and at the end of January, they lifted the lockdowns and declared victory over the pandemic, that they eradicated the disease from its shores. At the same time, you had this like Italian example where there's coffins lined up in cathedrals. People were panicked. I mean, really just dead on panicked. Um, there's an email exchange between Tony Fauci and one of his deputies named Cliff Lane that, that came out during these in these FOIA emails um, from those days. Uh, the, there was a huge effort to make sure that somebody for the NIH would got to go to China on this World Health Organization junket to try to evaluate what happened in China. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Cliff Lane finally got to go. Tony, Tony Fauci's deputy. Uh, and when he came back, he wrote an email to a, an epidemiologist at the, at the World Health Organization, which, which was, you know, I think was the same message he was sending within the, the, uh, the, the NIH, that what China had did had worked. That the Chinese example was something that we ought to consider very seriously, because even though it was high cost, you know, this, this draconian lockdown where people were welded into their own homes and not allowed out or quarantined forcibly or, or, or you know, pets just destroyed uh, wantonly, um, even though that, that those were like draconian measures, it had actually worked that, that, that China had conquered the disease. Um, and he wrote this, this email where he said, you know, uh, this, the, what China did worked, albeit at great cost, uh, we, in effect, we should seriously consider what they've done, although this decision is going to take more than just the people in this room, is what Cliff Lane lo- wrote to Maria Van Kirkhoff, this, uh, this epidemiologist at, at the World Health Organization. The NIH adopted this position based on that experience of sending one man to, to China, to Beijing, not even to Wuhan, that the Chinese policy of the lockdown was, this, was the policy that we ought to adopt because that was the right way to stop the virus from spreading because that's what the Chinese had done. I think that, that, that the, the, the example of China and the counterexample of Italy played a tremendously important role in the minds of public health, the top public health bureaucrats in the United States, in the UK, and many, many, many other countries. Um, and I think that's what led us down that path in March 20, that, 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 that flip. So this man, this deputy of Anthony Fauci, Cliff Lane, I mean, and I don't, I don't ask this question to throw an, an ad hominem insult at him. Was he dumb? Was he naive? Or was he bought off by the Chinese Communist Party in, in thinking and then articulating and advocating for a position of locking people down in that way and saying that it was effective? Well, I don't, th- I don't think he's bought off by the Chinese Communist Party. I and mean, he's a long-term uh, employee of, of the NIH. Uh, actually, I think he's an accomplished scientist accomplished lab science. I just don't think he has a, a lot of public health experience. Um, and how do you let, you know, it's like, uh, you, you, how do you let yourself be fooled into thinking something worked when it didn't? You know, he goes to China, he, he uh, with the World Health Organization, He's he goes to Beijing, not to Wuhan. He doesn't actually see what's happening on the ground in Wuhan. He has presentations from the Chinese Chinese uh, public health authorities telling him that what we, what we did worked. Um, 
And many of that, you know, the close collaborations between Chinese scientists and American scientists, that's that's normal. I mean, the world world scientists generally don't think too much about politics. Um, and so he's like getting getting advice from people he trusts in China that tell him, they're telling him what we did worked. Um, he doesn't have a lot of public health experience, so he doesn't feel deeply what the costs and harms truly are of those lockdown policies. He's just an infectious disease guy. And so he's just looking at this saying, okay, this is how we control this infectious disease. And he doesn't understand the knock-on consequences, which are just going to be, which we've lived the last three years. I mean, you could see it if you had any public health experience at all or, or, or social science experience at all, that that was exactly what's going to happen. You lock down, you ring this bell of fear and you can't unring it. And then all kinds of irrational things happen that, that harm people, especially the poorest and most vulnerable. That was obvious to anyone who had some... Uh, some deep public health experience and deep uh, deep understanding of the social science of it, but not Cliflain. I mean, Cliflain is not, uh, he's a lab scientist, an accomplished lab scientist, a deputy of Tony Fauci. He comes back and he's impressed. Um, a lot of the, a lot of our bureaucratic, uh, scientific bureaucratic leaders, they don't actually have a ton of public health experience. I mean, Tony Fauci is, is also a lab scientist primarily. And he's, it seems to me like a, like a, like he's obsessed with controlling germs when in fact he should be control, worried more about health as a whole rather than just simply one, one, one or small number of infectious diseases. Um, a lot of it was just fear and, and short-sightedness. And then, you know, our public health authorities give this advice to our, our, our governments. Um, uh, I have to say, like, I, I, looking at how President Trump reacted to this, I'm, I'm actually, frankly, I mean, I can understand a politician hearing this kind of advice from from public health advisors would would get scared. They say they're saying, um, "Look, uh, I mean, in fact, I actually got to go visit with President Trump in July of 2020 or August of 2020, and he asked me this question. He said, uh, uh, when I locked down in March 2020, did I save? I think I saved two million lives. Did I save two million lives?' He was hearing from public health advisors that were running very unrealistic models, saying that if he didn't lock down in March 2020. The whole the two million Americans are going to die within the next couple of months. As a politician, unless you have some science background or or you or you surround yourself with people that are willing to speak up and say, well, let's get a second opinion, it's really hard to push back. And I think that's exactly what happened in March 2020. Um, the the top scientific bureaucrats in the United States were advising the American government that if you don't lock down, you're going to get tremendous death. Politicians are looking and saying, well, I don't want tremendous death on my watch. I'm just going to follow what the scientific advisor is saying and say I'm following science. And that's how we got into this trap. Uh, Debbie Burks, who uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, I think Mike Pence uh, selected for to be the head of the White House tra- Task Force on cor- Coronavirus, she went around the country scaring the living daylights out of governors with, with these charts projecting how many people were going to die in each state if you didn't lock down. All of those charts were based on assumptions that they had no idea were true. And none of them displayed the actual harms of the lockdowns apart apart from the the, the supposed benefits from COVID. Um, it was so one-sided. Uh, and they it's the scientific bureaucracy that I blame the most, Liz. I think that they were irresponsible and not seeking outside opinions uh, and thoughts from other qualified scientists. Instead, they thought that they knew best. Right, so you got Tony Fauci going around saying, "If you question me, uh, you're not simply questioning a man; you're questioning science itself." You know, you remember, you remember he said that. I think it was Duran Paul, um, or some interviewer. I mean, that just think about the hubris of that. I mean, it is it is shocking. It is absolutely shocking. And but I think that's the attitude that those scientific bureaucrats had when they were advising 
um, po- politicians in, uh, in in our country and actually, and frankly, almost every other country. Um, it, it was a it was essentially uh, a, a grab of power in the name of public health. When I saw Tony Fauci sitting there next uh, in, at the presidential podium next to President Trump uh, in that first March co- uh, press conference uh, that that uh, you know that announced the state of emergency lockdowns, my thought was, well, we no longer have a president. I mean, Tony Fauci is the de facto president of the United States. Listen, Dr. Bhattacharya, you are a gentleman and a scholar, and more importantly, you're a nicer person than I am because you just gave a a smackdown to these people without being the slightest bit rude. I'm over here like this this deputy of Tony Fauci's who went to China and got fooled by the Chinese listening to their presentations in Beijing instead of seeing what's on the ground at Wuhan. That's devastatingly dumb. That's unforgivable for someone who works in the public eye like this. And There's a lot, I mean, you talk about the scientific community or the hierarchy of the scientific community, Dr. Fauci, in a sense, being on the top of that. I guess I've heard a lot of analysis and hypothesis about the the money that Fauci controls being one of the reasons why a lot of other people in science didn't speak out because they don't want to risk losing the grants that they get from the NIH, the NIAID, and Fauci, who controls all of that. Is that the root of the corruption, the big pharma money that that Fauci is essentially in bed with, that he doles out to to the scientific community and anybody who dissents is just eliminated from being able to pursue science with, with funding with the government? Is that the root of that corruption? Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I mean, uh, so uh, it's, it is definitely the root of his power. Uh, although, it's just, just one thing. It's not pharma money. It's actually taxpayer money to be that he doles out. Uh, he, he sits on, I think, $7 billion of taxpayer money. The NIH as a whole is $45 billion of taxpayer money. And it funds nearly every single biomedical scientist of note in, in this country, and in fact, uh, around the world. Um, it, but it's not even the money, Liz, that's the key thing. It's it's actually the social status that's conferred by getting an NIH grant. I mean, it's one thing if you get a pharma grant. I mean, that that actually automatically in the world of public health taints you a little bit. Like you're, you're somehow... Uh, uh, con- conflicted because you've got pharma money. But if you get NIH money, that's clean money. Not just clean money, it's money that that confers uh, a, a status that you, that you are, have arrived as a social, as a scientist, right? So I'm a professor in the School of Medicine at Stanford, a full, a full tenure professor at the School of Medicine at Stanford. I don't get tenure unless I get an NIH grant. That's like a, it's almost a requirement. It's not enough to just get money from any source, you have to, I mean, that it's it's like this the stamp of a, like of approval, essentially. So when someone like Tony Fauci, who's been at uh, the head of the NIAID for 38 years, um, he, spe- he says, look, we have to do this policy, those lockdowns. If you don't agree with me, you're, you're opposed to science itself. Uh, a lot of scientists, even if they don't say it directly out loud, or won't even even they won't even admit it directly to themselves. But this is this is really what's happening. They think they 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 feel in their bones that if they speak out against what Tony Fauci is saying, even if they disagree, they're putting their career at risk. 
it's not just they lose their grants, they lose their social status within the hierarchy of, of, of biomedical sciences. It's a tremendous power. And it's a power that Tony Fauci and Francis Collins abused during the pandemic um, because they were so certain they were right that even when there were prominent scientists on the other side from them saying, no, this, let's slow down, let's have a debate, let's have a discussion of what scientific evidence is saying, they, they used their power to organize essentially like smear campaign, a media smear campaign, uh, a big tech censorship campaign against scientists that disagreed with them. Um, you know, I might have been wrong. It's, it's possible. I don't think I was wrong uh, about the lockdowns. In fact, I'm certain I was right about the lockdowns being not, not particularly effective at stopping disease spread and, and tremendously damaging. Um, but I might have been wrong. Why didn't they just have a debate about those lockdowns in April of 2020, Mar October 2020, when I wrote the Great Barrington Declaration? Why didn't why didn't they why didn't they invite the, the you know at least some subset of the scientists with tens of thousands of scientists who signed on the Great Barrington Declaration? Um, to a debate. Uh, they weren't interested in discussion. They weren't interested in having their views challenged. They were so certain they were right and that, that anyone that opposed them was was, was either a, a crank, a pseudoscientist, or actively wanting uh, wanton damage to the to, to, to vulnerable people. Um, it, was, it, was, it was the height of hubris and sitting atop this vast pile of money, taxpayer-funded money, with the obligation, the mission to fund scientific work, instead they use that power to suppress scientific discussion. Which is, I mean, it's shocking to hear, it's shocking to hear this. The reason that I say that big pharma is tied into this because, is because there are researchers at the NIH or who funded by the NIH that then have patents that belong to the NIH that are, are licensed out to pharma. So Fauci and the NIH then profit from, there are employees of the NIH that profit on a yearly basis off of royalties of these, these patents that they created using funds, using taxpayer-funded grants, but then are sold to big pharma. I mean, it, we saw that, we saw the effects of this with the early interventions, the hydroxychloroquine, the ivermectin, that for some reason, though they were effective in many cases, were squashed so severely by, by the public health establishment. And the, the theory there was that um, Fauci needed emergency use authorization for his vaccine, and there can't be any other treatment that's workable if he is to obtain that emergency use authorization. Did that factor into it? I mean, I think certainly it's impossible to rule that out, Liz. I think you're 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 right, and and in particular, the fact that you say is right uh, that 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 the NIH uh, researchers can get funding uh, from uh, can, can get patents, and that those patents pay, uh, for for pharmaceutical and those those patents can pay out. Um, so I, I guess I'd say a couple of things. Like one is, I I, I, I don't. I'm, a, I'm an economist. I have a PhD in economics in addition to my medical degree. So I don't. It's it's impossible <laughs> impossible for me to know to rule out financial incentives having some some role. Of course, of course they played uh, some role. And in particular, I agree with you also that it's puzzling, unless you understand these financial incentives as to, as to why uh, did the NIAID not invest in rapid evaluation of the high with high quality randomized studies of cheap off patent drugs that looked promising, uh, like ivermectin, like fluvoxamine and others. Uh, whereas they invested a lot in, in on patent drugs like remdesivir that, that Gilead had. Um, but that is, that's a, that's, that's a mystery unless you understand, I think you understand that, uh, that, that, that there was some pharmaceutical company, uh, interest at play in the decision-making by NID uh, 
folks. Uh, that's that's true. I agree. I have to say, on the, I, I'm a little skeptical about someone like Tony Fauci. I don't think he's motivated by money primarily, Liz. I think he's motivated primarily by his reputation and his and his like world historic reputation. Like he wants to be the, remembered as the person that saved Americans, saved the world from from COVID. Uh, with uh, with with his support for the va- of vaccine, his like wise guidance about lockdowns and so on, right? He wants to be known as the next as as Jonas Salk, you know, the, like who who developed the polio vaccine that that essentially saved so many kids from being paralyzed in the mid mid twentieth century. He cares more about his reputation than he does about money. I think. Uh, now I don't know him personally. This is just my reading of him from the outside. Um, this is why, by the way, I think that the, that the appropriate way to uh, to uh, uh, essentially assess Fauci to, to, to address what happened, uh, reg- at least with respect to Tony Fauci, is to, is, to, is to correct the historical record. He should go down in history, as far as COVID policy goes, as a catastrophic failure. What he recommended, what he did, resulted in the loss, a tremendous loss of life during the pandemic. Um, and, and, and cause our societies to fracture in ways that will have tr- tremend- uh, tremendous negative consequences for a generation of, of, of children, of vulnerable people, for, young, for, for, uh, for uh, working class people, for, uh, especially worldwide, I think. Um, the, 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 the generational poverty caused by these lockdowns, well, that's on leaders like Tony Fauci who recommended them without understanding what their knock-on consequences would be. I think that's how... That's the worst punishment that you could he could imagine having, and I, and I, and I think he's fully deserving of that. That's well deserved. That would be if he if he got that. I think the ling- one of the lingering questions that I have, and I know that this is shared by a lot of Americans, and this is not just true for COVID. This is true for other things that turned out to be in alignment with the leftist ideology, whether it's puberty blocking, hormone therapy for children with gender disorders, whether it's critical race theory, you know, in the name of health equity or health equity in the name of critical race theory, people wonder how the preeminent medical institutions, whether these are medical schools, whether these are medical research universities, whether these are hospitals, whether they're the governing organizations like the American Academy of Pediatrics or the American Medical Association, people wonder how those organizations who have tremendous influence on both public health, but also the medical care, the recommendations, the standards of care that we all experience with our families every time we have a a health issue, we wonder how it got so completely corrupted with very, very radical leftist ideology, not just a little left-leaning, not just, you know, your traditional Democrat, but almost neo-Marxist in their ideology. Do you have an answer for how that happened? Uh, so I, I guess I, the way I characterize this is, I mean, first, just the, the base fact, and we already talked about this earlier, the vast majority of people who work in public health are, are left-leaning. And so they, but they don't think of themselves as like political. They're just, that's just the, the water they swim in, right? So, so you don't know if you're a fish, you're swimming in water. They just think that that's normal. Uh, that, that those, that the, the kind of social norms that in their social circles are are the normal ones and that people that disagree with them uh, that it may have different values than them, religious values or whatnot, are somehow other. Um, that by itself actually creates a situation where public health cannot succeed. Right? Public health is not like politics. Right? If I win fifty percent plus one in politics, I'm a successful politician. I get it. I get elected office. Public health has to reach everybody. 
it has to reach you know ninety five hundred. I mean, it, if it, it it it's a it's a it's one of these things where like if you're not trusted by uh, us, even even like five percent, ten percent of the population, you failed in public health. It's it, public health has to be for everybody. They, what that means then is you have to respect the values and norms of everybody, whether you disagree with them politically or not. Um, and so, and the the other thing that's going on here is that there's this like this idea, uh, and you've seen it very clearly during the pandemic, that somehow science itself has an answer for how society ought to be organized as, as an answer to all of these very, very complicated questions. When in fact, um, you know, sh- puberty, puberty blockers for, I mean, I, I don't think that's a, they're a very good idea, but like, um, you know, there are people who disagree with me within within medicine, I guess. Um, uh, it's not, is it really just a scientific question? It's not, right? It's, it's something else beyond the scientific question. And there's like tremendous values uh, that people have that are important to the, in, in, in terms of like how they, they react to these things uh, that are important. Now, now, in public, how should public health react to the fact that there are people who disagree based on, 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 on values that they deeply hold and they're common in society? You can't just say, well, those values are wrong. You're evil. You're like some horrible right winger that should be shunned in public health. You have to account for that in your in your, in how you act. You have to treat everybody with respect, even if you disagree with them on their values. Um, like I never signed up for a political party for this reason, Liz. I I, I figured I'm, I'm working public health. I'm going to find research findings that are sometimes uh, folks on the right might like. I'm going to find research findings that that sometimes people on the left will like. I don't have any control over what the data show when I start a study. I don't know the answer to a study when I start it. Or else, why why would I do a study in the first place, right? I just and I don't have any control over how people use it after the, the study results are. I'm just a scientist. Um, public health, I think, became has become, and you can see this clearly during the pandemic. This this sort of has, has adopted this this almost moralizing attitude that if you disagree with them politically, that that somehow you're evil. That by itself is is a, a good explanation for why public health failed so badly during the pandemic. The, the basic professional obligation it has to treat everybody with respect, even people within the society, even people that, that, that they may personally disagree with politically, they failed at that. Uh, and that's been a tremendous problem. And, and it's caused, I think, deep distrust in public health, which is going to make it basically impossible for public health to do a good job uh, for, for, for a very long time until they address it. Hmm. I think that's very insightful because basically the contrast is you're describing public health versus social engineering. And, and for not for better or for worse, for worse, public health has morphed into trying to engineer our society to fit their political beliefs. I want to circle around to where we began. We began with the Twitter files. We began with the fact that when you did dissent from the public health establishment, when you did follow the science instead of ideology, you were immediately blacklisted on Twitter. Fast forward almost three years, Elon Musk has revealed the proof of that, that you were on a trends blacklist. Elon invited you to Twitter headquarters, did he not? He did. He did. Um, that was really interesting. And that, yeah, that must have been a crazy experience. <laughs> I mean, I, I, uh, I got an, an, uh, a, a message from a, f- a common friend of ours uh, who said he had a Christmas present for me. And, um, and I, so I called him up and he's like, I, you, I, I, I got Elon to, Elon wants to have you come to the headquarters. The headquarters. I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll, I actually, I was supposed to write a, a, a final for my, my class that I'm teaching. I'm like, okay, crap. I'll, I guess I'll have to do that after, after I get back. Um, 
Uh, and I, so I arrived on Saturday uh, afternoon. I was there till like 9 p.m. Elon, uh, I, I met with a Twitter engineer for, at first, and we went and I saw that what the, they have this like really interesting looking tool where you can click and see sort of the history of what uh, what, what led uh, what like the, the you know my status of my account. That's how I found out that the trends blacklist was applied when I first signed on to Twitter, you know, the first day. And, and it even said like there are multiple people complaining about me. Like what had I done other than post a link to the Great Barrington Declaration arguing for focused protection of vulnerable people? Um, uh, I mean, that's why that's why I think it, Twitter Twitter didn't do this on its own. Um, and it also said like you know I applied for you know that blue check mark uh, that that uh, I think you have Liz on, on Twitter like that says you're like you're an official verified person. I applied three times for it and never got it. Uh, um, and it turned out because each time there was a note in the in that tool that said uh, that I wasn't I didn't meet notability standards. I wasn't notable enough, even though like. I'm a professor in a medical school and like all the, I used to be a quiet professor, Liz. Like I had, a, I'd never wrote an op-ed before 2020. Before 2020, maybe you'd say, I mean, I was notable in my field, but not notable publicly. But in, since 2020, I mean, I'm, I'm on all these news shows. You'd think, you know, but I wasn't notable enough, um, which is fine. I guess I'm a fringe epidemiologist, so it's all good. Um, uh, <laughs> It's. I'm sorry. It's hard not to laugh because it's it's an absurd justification for what we know is just political bias. It is. It is funny though. I it was anyway. So and then then Elon gave me an hour of his time, which was remarkable actually, because you know the man wow. he's running four companies. I guess. Um, I mean, we talked about the, the censorship. You know, he bought the company uh, because he is offended by this censorship and and that and Twitter's central role in that censorship. Um, I mean, this is why he, you know, he's putting himself, putting the company, I think, at legal jeopardy by having all these, like, this openness, this transparency about what went on. But he he he, he spent those $44 billion for Twitter because he wanted to make sure that, that American society can be open again to free speech. Um, that's what's motivating him. Um, you know, and, and Did I, he that, seem that committed to that for- principle? Absolutely. I mean, he even made a joke. It's like, you know, I could have I could have spent the 44 billion on a, on a Pacific island or something. Uh, but but uh, he wanted to like he wanted he, what he wanted to do is I mean, he says this. So you want to save civilization. Um, and I agree with him in this. The, the the regime that we're currently under in the United States, where there there really isn't a First Amendment, there really isn't free speech. That is a danger, not just the United States, but to the whole world. Like the world looks to us as a place where free speech can happen, where where new ideas can come out, even if they're not approved by uh, by the powers that be. Um, that can be debated openly. Look just an example, and uh, I think that's that's what Elon motivated Elon to try to restore that to the United States. He also is a naturalized citizen like me. Um, uh, that's he, right. Uh, yes. He. Yeah, I mean, I think I think he and so the other thing is it was also clear he was he was against the lockdowns from the very beginning of the pandemic. You know, like he moved his factory, his, his Tesla factory, I guess, from California, which was locked down in the early days of the pandemic to Texas, or moved moved headquarters, I guess. Um, I mean, he 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 also understood it was really clear the harms of the lockdowns to the poor of the world. And that's so we spent a lot of time talking about that about why I oppose lockdowns. Um, so, I mean, I came away quite impressed. I think he is doing this for the right reasons. Uh, I mean, there's hiccups and obviously complications with, uh, with running Twitter. Well, he, uh, it was interesting. Like before that, before I got to talk to him for an hour, I, I sat outside the, this conference room where he was, where he was finishing up a meeting with, with a whole bunch of Twitter engineers. 
Um, and, uh, you know, some of them I got to talk with and they were telling me that he was there till he's, he's going to ask them like, how long is he going to be there? Uh, how long does he normally stay at where, uh, you know, at, during the, you know, he says, and it was a Saturday night. He's like, they, they all told me he's going to be there till 3 a.m., you know, working. I mean, he, the guy, he's a, the guy's an engineer. That, that's what he really likes to do at heart. Um, uh, and uh, a lot of this is like he's taking this on as a, as a, essentially like as a, as a, uh, as a rescue mission, but he doesn't, he just wants to be an engineer, I think. Well, I can't help but sit here and wonder, Dr. Bhattacharya, what our country and the world, would look like today, nearly three years after COVID happened, if someone like you had been in charge of public health versus Dr. Fauci. I greatly appreciate you coming on the show today and having this conversation. It was fascinating. And I highly encourage you, don't go back to being that quiet professor. We need your voice in our country. (laughs) It is a public service to us all uh, that you are doing what you're doing. So thank you for being here, sir. Thank you, Liz, and thank you. I'm grateful that even though early in the pandemic, you were willing to let to to not uh, to, to talk with me. I, I appreciate that. Of course, of course, your your work early in the pandemic was one of the greatest influences in me seeing what the science was about COVID and being able to counter the public health establishment. So, had you not published that, who knows? Who knows where we'd be now? Um, thank you for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you, Liz. Take care. All right, guys, don't forget to subscribe to the show. If you like to listen to podcasts, go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, hit that subscribe button. If you like to watch podcasts, go to rumble.com slash Liz Wheeler, hit that subscribe button. I greatly appreciate everybody Appreciate everybody who's been subscribing. Thank you for watching today. Thank you for listening. I'm Liz Wheeler. This is The Liz Wheeler Show. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.